Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. Uh, hi, I'm Larry Nemechek. Uh, I've marketing friends forced me to come up with a moniker <laughs> 10 years ago, and it turned out to be Dr. Trek, and I hated it then, but I'm so glad they did because it makes it so much easier than saying author, editor, archivist, interviewer, host, uh, yada, 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 actor, voice actor sometimes. Um, kind of everything. Yeah. You kind of yeah. do everything. So you are the biggest Star Trek fan in this or any universe. How did you get started as a fan? <laughs> How did I get? Well, I got the manual and I, uh, no. You, I think you wrote the manual for fans, didn't you? No, no, no. <laughs> I, you know, there was, I mean, come on, there was Bejo, Bejo Trimble and, and tons. There was fandom. There was sure. fandom and there was even Star Trek fandom, which I will mm -hmm. tell anybody that will listen that Star Trek was such a people, people that we just breathe, you know, Comic-Con culture now, media culture, media fandoms that, yeah, there was sci-fi fandom and conventions and first fandom. And you go back to the first Worldcon in the late sure, what, sure. 38, I think. Mm -hmm. But lit fandom was a very now, you know, we say just sci-fi. It's kind of like we should say phones. And then phones. Now, to, the first time I heard somebody say a corded phone, I was like, "What? Oh, okay. I guess we have to distinguish now." You know, it's that way. It's like uh, sci-fi fandom was just that, but then nobody thought of it as anything on a screen because what was on a screen was usually so horrible. Maybe it was something else if Star Trek hadn't come along, but eventually Star Trek was the first thing on a screen, large or small, that made people care enough to invent a popularity and a following and a passion that wasn't just words or pictures on a page. And as radical as, I mean, that's not, well, yeah, big deal, but that was a paradigm shift for a lot of people. And even to the point where Star Trek fans had to go off and start their own conventions, you know, because they weren't respected at first. Like, that's nice. I respect your passion, but you really, you know, now we call it gatekeeping, but it was like, you really should learn your foundational, you know, you really should learn your Asimov and your Wells and your, you know, la-da-da. So anyway. Um, so, yeah, why do you yeah. think, I mean, Star Trek certainly wasn't the first science fiction show. Other things existed. But so what was it about Star Trek that let it be that catalytic moment? Well, you say show. I mean, think, you know, like the Flash Gordons and the, you know, on the Saturday morning serials and then like, you know, Captain Video and, and whatever. Lost in space, certainly. Yeah, well, I, I was going to creep into that. Yeah. I mean, because I would say Twilight Zone was mm -hmm. awesome, but Twilight Zone was an anthology and it wasn't regular characters. So it was the concept, not any, you know, you didn't get beyond that. And, oh, it's my favorite episode. And I love this moment. And then Lost in Space. Okay. Rest my case. <laughs> So, you know, the eight-year-old kids were excited. So that's why Star Trek was so revolutionary. And now it's, you know, Star Trek fought the geek revolution and then went away, you know, helped ignite Star Wars. And then we had everything, you know, and then and then it's come back. And Doctor Who was in the UK, but it wasn't here. And it was the I same was, year was, though, right? Huh? Wasn't it the same year that Doctor Who started the same year Star Trek did? Uh, Doctor Who started in 63 because their first okay. episode aired the day JFK was shot. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. That's I how I can wrong. always remember it. Oh, yeah. But, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Which, which, the, which Who fans love to point out. And then I always say, yes, but it took the Americans to show you how to market it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
So yes, and Doctor Who's got the great DNA of they'll always be changing, so it's kind of baked in the cake. But anyway, so it's like you had the and then and then you had kind of an explosion thanks to Star Trek and Star Wars, and then it was really the next gen's success that really blew things open. And then very soon after that, you know, you go down the list. You have Buffy. You have, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Xena. You, I mean, go down the list of what happened, and then that all. The TV fans and the TV production and writer people all graduated to big screen, and you know, and then Marvel blew open with the, you know, the interview. Anyway, but it's you trace it all back to Star Trek was kind of the first branch of people thinking, oh, something on a screen can be not only respectable but can get that can hold on to people for all the, you know, for all the reasons, the optimism and the diversity and the respect for life and. And the gee whiz and the and the smart, not just geekiness, but the smart geekiness, you know, the future science projected yeah. for all. Yeah, absolutely. So me, I blame my ninth grade science teacher. She sent me down in rerun days. She said, I can't believe you're not watching Star Trek after school. And that's where it started for me. After I school. love it. I love Start- it that it started with a science teacher. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you started. So in night. In, was it in college you started writing the Concordance and Episode Guide in the 80s? Um, it was, I, I did do some stuff in college, but it was, it was coming out of the Bejo's original Concordance, the original mm-hmm. encyclopedia now, and the original tech manual and the original medical reference and all that. And I just was a big background fan. And I knew that people, a lot of people reacted to Star Trek. And in the days when you had to make your own because there was nothing new, and you didn't know if there ever would be again, but you just felt compelled to keep it going. And some people compelled felt that way by writing stories, which I was like, oh, that didn't occur to me. Because to me, it was like, here's this universe that we've only seen a sliver of, and it needs to be fleshed out. <laughs> so that was like my reaction to it. And then and then especially, and I was always like, an ast- I was a NASA kid before I was really a sci-fi kid. I read sci-fi, but I was really a real space, I guess, nerd fan. And, uh, you know, I had model rockets, but also model railroading and I collected stamps and I did all the nerdy things. But back then you just say I have a lot of hobbies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, but I it was when I got B. Joe's Concordance and it was like all the star. I was like, wow, there's a lot of real stars in here. And then but there's just like tons of stars and planets anyway. And so many of them are real. And then Franz Joseph in the tech manual had tried to do a star chart organization of what the star trek universe looked like you know physically and so i started trying to flesh that out and that got me down this crazy star charting path that wound up with meeting jeff mandel long distance when we were in college and working on something and then having that ripped away because another thing had been sold that was official the star trek maps in a cardboard pouch and he wound up inheriting that to finish it and then years later, Next Generation comes along and Mike Akuta has to gets the chance to give us a real one with the quadrant system. And then later on, after I'm in Hollywood working, um, you know, adjacent to things, then here's Jeff gets hired in art and graphics to work on Generations. And Mike, and Mike did not know our history at all, but I was up, you know, researching something. I was Larry, you're somebody you should meet. And I walk over and he's like, Larry, do you know Jeff Mantell? And I'm like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> you know, we were in college and we, you know, we, we, we couldn't even talk long distance because, you know, long distance oh, right. phone yeah. rates back then. And everything we did was like stamp and paper, um, which is great because now I have an archive. 
but it's just oh yeah it's just funny how those circles go but anyway but that was that was the thing that got me and i and i uh after a while i realized that i was in the minority like most fans wanted to talk about spock and stories and shipping and everything which I did. That was great. That was cool. But to me, it was like, well, yeah, that's a given. Okay. Now the stuff that, <laughs> of course, yeah, of course, Star Trek is optimistic and futuristic and diverse and yay for all that. Because if we don't, if we don't become that, then we'll all, we'll kill ourselves and blow up the planet and, uh, or poison the planet and we won't get there. So if we're going to have this future, Gene says, of course we have to be all those things. It was like, uh, yeah. well, yeah. Well, yeah, okay. let's let's focus on futures we want to live in. Right, right, right. You know, so, it's not dystopian. And that's why Star Trek shone out. And that's why I, you know, I was worried in the 90s when we had, you know, the dot com boom and everything was getting feeling like it was cushier in like the 60s and the 70s were a lot, you know, racial strife and pollution was getting handled kind of and. You know, it seemed like a lot of the issues that burned for people. Vietnam was, oh, we'll never do something stupid like that again. <laughs> you know, it seemed like a lot of those 60s, 70s issues had been kind of quasi settled, or at least we'd have new kinds to deal with. And I was really worried that, like, is the fire gone out for Star Trek fans? Like, it's intellectually interesting when Picard and his bunch go do something. But it was like, will there ever be that burning passion that people... You know, and then about the time Star Trek goes away is when the world starts going to shit in a lot of ways again. And then lo and behold, here we've got, you know, it's like, thank goodness we've got Star Trek again. Anyway, it's funny how that's. But I was really I was really worried that the 90s were going to get so cushy that um, nobody would have that Star Trek hunger again. Or Star Trek would just become, you know, happy, dappy, interesting adventures and lose its appeal and so luckily the yeah. world started burning again so people yeah <laughs> luckily who knew ds9 would be so prescient about you know oh, civil liberties and collective yeah. security and and prejudice and you know hidden oppressions and all kinds of things yeah yeah so you have done more than 500 interviews with actors and writers and and the set designers and the graphic people like pretty much everybody related to star trek you have interviewed um mm. so what is the secret to a good interview oh well see a lot of those you were saying i really focused they were utilitarian because in the beginning when i was doing the next gen companion i needed behind the scenes interviews mm -hmm. because to me i mean we love the actors and God bless them. They're the face of any show. But I have this story. I, I used to love going to Starlands to Steve and Kathy Walker's convention in Denver. To me, that was like the epitome of a Trek con in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and when we did our convention in Oklahoma City, that's what I patterned it after. But I love being there with Jonathan Frakes on stage or, um, you know, anybody, Marina, anybody. And but I, I for some reason, I can remember Jonathan doing this. People in the audience would would ask questions, you know, Q&A. And he would say, you know what? That's a Michael Westmore question. You know, wake up or you know what? That's a Dan Curry question. Or you know what? That's a that's a Michael Pillar question. Or, you know, you know what? That's an Alan Sims question for props. And I'm sitting in the audience being me going, then why aren't they on stage? <laughs> Write down all those names and you'll find them. And yeah, 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 yeah. But in my head and in my heart of hearts, I knew someday I'm going to have Larry's tech con and it'll be me and 11 other people and we'll go broke, but we'll be happy. You know, it was like, I just, but that was pre-internet before you knew all the, <laughs> the silent majorities of fans out there. So, um, 
that's where I come from. Because to me, it's like, you know, we love the actors and they have the charisma and they do have a lot of good stories. But if you really want to know how Star Trek is made and put together, they're the, I don't say they're the last ones in line because you almost want to say visual effects and, and music and post, but they've been planned already. I mean, they were pre-planning. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like they're the icing on the cake, but you've got to have a cake to hold that up for a tortured metaphor. So, and I always thought they didn't get near enough attention and they, it's gotten better, but you know, through the eighties and the nineties and the aughts, there was so much of that that wasn't being paid attention to. Um, and even so, tons of stuff that people had no idea to ask the questions about or know how the business worked. And that's why this is how it shows up in Star Trek because this is the way Hollywood is, you know? So, so I was just, I, I started doing it from my book but then even when The Next Generation was done and The Companion was published, because we were out here and because by then my wife Janet was working on Voyager and because everybody knew me and trusted me and I had had to kind of start off, even though I was an official author, I had to learn the way like people are on deadline and they're in a mad dash. And the easiest time to talk to everybody is right before they go on hiatus, when they're done, they can breathe. But before they flush their memory core for the summer, because when they come back after hiatus vacation, they're they're all raring to go and their brain is, you know, they've they've washed that. They flushed that and they've got a clean slate for the new season. And there's a sweet spot there to do to get to them. And so that's what I would do. But really, all those interviews were about trying to sit down for a year, you know, and look at the season in review based on what somebody, whether they were a writer or visual effects or costumer or props or whatever they were and not so much now what happens is everybody runs in for a little quickie interviews and they're because it's all about promoting the next thing i much rather like doing the archival things that i mean i've had more than one person when the dvd came in the dvd interviews and bonus features mm -hmm. uh ron, affects ron more ron d uh, ron b more mm -hmm. told me more than once larry i'm so glad that you like talk to us back then because now I have something to go back and refresh before I sit down for my camera <laughs> interview, you know? But so Absolutely. that's when you say five, 600, that's what it is. I would try, I would probably talk to 20 or 30 people like every, every year at the end for 15, 20 years until everything blew up in 05, you know? And it adds up eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So who was your favorite person to interview? Oh my gosh. <laughs> See, this is, um, I mean, some of the memorable ones. See, so there's I, the one that I will always go back to, though, is um, is Bob Justman, partly because I was desperate because I had to do the first edition of The Companion supposedly in three months. <laughs> That's fast. Blue, the blue cover. Yeah, because they're like, you've got it written. Well, I had done an encyclopedia, my self-published thing that got me on the radar to even get this. Um that I, we had desktop publishing and I had, you had laser printers and it looked so professional. And I was, I was, you know, it was perfect. I had a, I was a journalist writer and I had an entertainment background and then I was a fan. And I always thought that kind of three-legged stool, you know, fit me really well because a lot of people are great interviewers, but they don't know, you know, they don't know, they're not fans. They don't know the minutiae to get into easily. And then a lot of people, they're fans, but they don't know how Hollywood works. And they ask, you know, clunky questions. So it was like great having a bundle of all that. But um, I, uh, I, um, I've lost my track. Sorry. <laughs> you're, you're good. What Your did you favorite, ask me? Favorite person to interview. <laughs> oh, so Bob Justman, when I came in in 92, 
I had to get this done in three months. I didn't get it that people didn't drop everything. You know, well, hi, I'm the official author. So, of course, everyone. No, they don't care. They're trying to do a series. So later on, Rick Berman and Jerry Taylor and Michael Piller and even Brandon, then he was an intern. They called me back home in Oklahoma then, you know, and we did phone interviews, but they didn't have time when I had just arbitrarily picked my week to go out. But I had this book to do. And the bottom line was I did not want this to be some crappy, shallow thing. I knew that it needed to be as, you know, B. Joe's book, uh, Stephen Whitfield's Making of Star Trek was kind of like the model. And it's like, how the hell do I do that in three months? And I had a lot of interviews. I, I had a, you know, magazines. I had interviews with people to, that I could cite, but I needed so much more to get to a making of Star Trek level or Alan Asherman's companion for the original series. And thank God, uh, and, you know, in the first couple of years, as we all know now, Chaos on the Bridge, people who were there at the beginning and the first couple of years who had all long gone because they were pissed and burned out and run off or whatever. So by the time of the fifth season, when this was, a lot of the first year's people, 99% of them were all gone. So I was like, what am I going to do? And thank God, Bob Justman had retired, but I got he, they got me his number and I went to his house for four hours. And I was like, oh, thank God, thank God, thank God. And he was great. Plus, I'd read Bob Justman's stories from day one about the original series, you know, uh, and his memos and how what this dry sense of humor he had and his memos. And um, and then about two hours in, he goes, well, I still have some of my next generation memos. Would you like to see them? I'm like, yes. Would you? I could print them out for you. If Yes. Is that Thank a God. trick question? <laughs> yeah, what is this? So anyway, so there's been lots of, you know, interview. Usually my interview was like, okay, let's talk about the last year. Like, what did you direct? Well, let's look at your writing shows. I, I want to know the in-jokes here that I've spotted and I want to ask you about them. You know, all of that, not not just. So we're going to have a show about the, the Yazoo's coming up. So what can you tease us about? That kind of thing. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't, that's valuable. The world's got to have that, but it's like I don't even I, I don't want, I don't want to talk to somebody until I can talk to them. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Post spoiler, but no, um, you know they all cut. So after Bob Justman and lots of big ones over the years, um, they're all just kind of like you know bricks in the wall in a good way. Yeah, sure. But Bob Justman saved my ass because I said <laughs> now I had two two or three chapters worth of roots. And here's the early days when there was nobody else to talk to, really, because, you know, Gene was dead by then. and Everybody else was pissed off. You never forget the first one who saves your ass and get you get you over yes. that hump. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Um, so in addition to reporting on the Star Trek universe, you've been a part of it as an actor uh, in Star Trek <laughs> Continues, Star Trek New Voyages. So which, which do you like more, being in Star Trek shows or writing about Star Trek shows? Well, the writing, I mean, the acting and being in and and you're being very kind there, but um, that was great and a lot of fun. Like the best thing, the new voyages, I got to be a Tellarite. So some of this is just, like most of it is, uh, I mean, if I wanted to go into acting professionally and live and die and live and die every week to week, month to month, I could have done that in my 20s. But I didn't feel like being a martyr like so many other, you know, young people out of school were. So mm -hmm. I needed a paycheck every week. So. Even though it was small, it was at least it was regular. Yeah, yeah. You know, and worked in news. But um, and now and of course, I immediately want to go back and fix and change things or whatever. And that's really I mean, I, I started to get into voice over 
Mm-hmm. But then I pulled back when I had to start building Portal 47 and doing some of this entrepreneur business building. Um, but I still want to do that. And to me, voiceover is like a great marriage of acting without sacrificing your soul or something you can get into at any age mm-hmm. without being you know, young and adorable and pretty and competing and then growing up with that to some degree. Or you're a, you know, you're a late bloomer. You're the overnight success that's been working on it for 30 years. So I'm, you know, I had a family, I had bills to pay and all that. So so it was, and I hate to say indulgence because that makes it sound kind of selfish. It was amazing. And when you're working with, you know, great people around you, mm-hmm. um, that's a lot of fun too. And really um just really satisfying. So, you know, and of course, what I did on continues was like playing McCoy. So mm-hmm. that was that was like being a Tellerite and Tellerite makeup on on phase two new voyages so uh yeah but definitely writing because i also feel like what i do especially is like i'm trying to get things preserved and on the record so that they're out there especially people and moments that may not have otherwise been preserved mm-hmm. so so that's that and it's kind of like oh anybody can get up on screen it's like if it, if i'm doing something it's all about me <laughs> and you anybody, anybody can do that well, you have a very unique niche in the world of Star Trek, right? I mean, you are the guy who's talked to everybody from the beginning. And that's a thing you, someone can't come in now and have talked to everybody from the beginning. Well, that's so, well, and not, you know, not the original series, sadly. And there's so many people that got away. And I, you know, in the 90s and early aughts, there were tons of because I was I was working on you know, the book was Next Generation. And then all the new shows were in our face. And oh, my God. They're cranking out two series at once with a movie every couple of years. What a load of Star Trek that was. I mean, you know, so compared to now even, but at mm-hmm. least um, if not in episodes, boy, now there's like five layers of casts and five layers of creative teams. That's amazing to keep up with. But um, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> so you've produced or are in the process of producing a documentary. Also, The Con of Wrath, which is a mm-hmm. fantastic title. Um, so what story does that film tell and and what inspired you to tell that particular story? Well, thank you. Uh, I can't wait to see what it looks like when we're done because we've been working on it way too long. Um, but the content is there. We just have to get it, get the post strategy in place. But I didn't come up with the title. The title was Organic to the Event, which was the first real time anybody tried to get. And this was in 1982. In Houston, so ten years after the first Star Trek con, mm-hmm. which was the first, you know, we said for a long time media con, but the first non-traditional sci-fi lit type con, mm-hmm. uh, it was a show. It was attached to the regular Houston con, regular convention that had been going on. And Houston was a real big fandom town. Um, I knew about it because it was on the back cover of Starlog, and I was like, "Oh my mm-hmm. god!" And I had been trying to meet DeForest Kelly and get his autograph and all of that for a long time. But it was to be the first, they call it the ultimate fantasy was the actual name of the show that was at an arena. Mm -hmm. It was an adjunct with a separate ticket. And it was the first time the entire cast and we're talking entire cast is as in no bloody A, B, C, or D. It was the original series people Mm -hmm. Um, and hard Bennett. And after Connor, after the wrath of con in 82, Kirstie Alley and Merritt Buttrick. So all of this, and then all of this, except for Leonard Nimoy, who was a story in itself, because he was in his, I don't want to keep Star Trek, and I don't want to continue with my Star Trek. But by the time it happened, which was two weeks after the 
the Star Trek two premiere, he had already changed his mind. Like he was changing his mind about everything about staying on with Star Trek and, and keeping the ears on for a future spot and seeing his way, you know, cleared how that would, that would not be saddled with the stereotype, but how it would be embracing this amazing future. Um, he had wanted to come and be, and they told him no toward the end because they were too far along, <laughs> which is insane now. But that's just one of the stories because I went down with a couple of my buddies to this adventure. It was my first out-of-state convention to drive to. And because of that and a million other reasons, we're doing the documentary because by the end of the weekend, it did get this nickname organically, the Con of Wrath, uh, the ultimate fantasy became the ultimate fallacy the ultimate f up the ultimate <laughs> i mean i don't know if you know this about fans but they can be really snarky at times um really huh that's weird. i know i know amazing never, never heard of that i was there this basically <laughs> the weekend did not go the way it was supposed to go on the other hand it did go so it was this amazing you know for years and years like wow we were there at that thing and they did a basically the the show went on but they were they thought they had three sold out 17,000 seat it was in the arena where the Houston Rockets used to play mm -hmm. what's funny is today it's uh Joel Osteen's mega church the building <laughs> but for years it was the Rockets arena it's called the summit it was Rockets arena and it's where all the big rock shows and traveling you know musicals big shows would come on mm -hmm. tour and be there which is why they were there, which is why this organizing group was there. Anyway, um, I didn't get, I got the the moment, you know, it was like, oh my God, that was interesting. But it was my first time out of state and I didn't know what to, you know, it was a unique show and we were at the regular convention, which was exciting, you know, but something didn't go right. The bottom line was us having to pay for our hotel rooms after we'd already paid for our hotel rooms. So we only stayed one night and then we went down to Galveston and came back. But the point is, fast forward to about 10 years ago, and uh, I was introduced across the room at a dead dog party after SoonerCon <laughs> to a guy who had who was still in fandom and working on cons, but uh, on lit cons. Um, they they did a world con. Um, Bill Parker, and I was somebody said, hey, he's talking about the con of wrath over there. You should go talk to him. And I was like, what? OK, I haven't thought about that in ages. And but come to find out that the original organizing team uh, was still much mostly intact. And um, anyway, we talked for a little bit, but my mind kind of exploded. And I was like, oh, my God. And this was before the explosion of YouTube and social media. Social media was three <laughs> or four years old. You know, we were all still Facebooking and barely tweeting. And um, but I thought, oh, my God, this is a, this is another. This is something that needs to be preserved. This is something that's amazing. And and. I was thinking, wow, they're all still pretty much in Houston. It would be easy to go down and get people. And I thought, no, Larry, you don't, you're not going to audio tape everybody. You know, you need to get them on camera. And then I thought, oh, wait, I've been trying to do something, not be a word guy, be a guy, media guy, which today sounds silly because everybody with the phone sits down and starts YouTubing in two mm -hmm. seconds now. But back then I'm like, oh, I've been wanting to be a media person, not a word person. So you should do a documentary about this. So that was the that was the impetus. And and it's been an amazing I almost could do a documentary about the making of documentary, especially now that it's been too many years, but we're working on that. Um, but it it just it kept all these like sub stories and sidebars and wacky things on the side, just and as we went along, I also knew it was a great time to point out to all of our 
young, excited, passionate, and maybe a little naive generation of fandom now that uh, not only has fandom changed a lot, a lot of it's been exactly the same. <laughs> like that snark I mentioned. But the other part, and there was, it was almost like a 60 minutes to it because in the beginning, everybody thought that something, this all fell apart because somebody ran off with the money somewhere. Well, it turned out there was never any money to run off with. So there was that. But the other thing was we, I'd had five or six, I'd have a few years of hearing this backlash to geek girls and fangirls like, oh, it's like coming over from anime and all this. It's like, what are you talking about? Do you not know Bijo Trimble? Do you not know, um, um, all the women that were the fan fiction revolution who started the clubs, who started the cons. And yeah, there were guys too, but Shirley Mayuski with the well committee and like all this, all these pioneering women, it's like, that's out of touch and a big chunk of the organizers for there in Houston. So as a subtext, part of the interviewing is about, Oh, look, it's the early eighties. Oh, look, there's more girls and women in these photos. How did that happen? What were they lost? You know, so that was going to be a, that's a thread of it too. That I can't wait to see that. I, cause I, I occasionally will get people talking to me about how girls have come into fandom and I'm like, come into fandom. Let's yeah. see. Let's go back to the first science fiction books which were written by women. Let's go back to, you know, Lucille Ball's role. Let's go back to the first conventions. Excuse me. Tell me how the girls came later. Mm -hmm. um, the girls did all the work and then you guys just showed up and thought it was yours. <laughs> look at a look at a photo of the organizers of the first New York con, and it's oh, like yeah. one guy and then 40 women. You know, and it's I, Al Schuster who was the dealer, who was the dealer guy, and then everybody else was, yeah, Joni Winston, who worked at CBS and was a big fan and helped get, I mean, wrote the books, you know, about the I making. Have, I have that book. It's about three feet that way, so I won't uh, yeah, pick it up and show yeah. it to you. But the thing I love about that book is. I got it and read it five or six years after I started helping run Starbase. And it feels like I recognize mm -hmm. the situation like, oh, right. That, yeah, that that's the same thing we're doing. And it does, it has a whole layer to it that a lot of attendees never see. Yeah. And, you know, we get, we get a little arrogant now because we think, oh, we have the internet and we have social media, you know, and there's a lot of things because we were doing cons in the 80s and, and well into the 90s uh, up till the turn of the century. And oh, that makes me hurt to say turn of the century. I know, uh, right? <laughs> but even then, uh, that's what I what the con of wrath is going to try to do, even with the internet revolution and digital making a lot of things easier and and you know, cell phones, you know, mm -hmm. you watch an old movie and you think, oh, if they'd had cell phones, this whole movie wouldn't have happened. Well, <laughs> you know, the complicating right. incident wouldn't have, you know, but even given that the personalities and the situations and the humanity of it is, um, is something. So that's, like I said, I want to show how much fandom has changed and, you know, the cult, cause the culture around us has changed, mm -hmm. but how, how so much is exactly the same, you know, hasn't changed at all. Yeah, I mean, you you have had pretty much every role related to a convention. You've been a guest of honor. You've been an attendee. You've been an organizer. You've done all the things. Um, so what is it you love about conventions? I, you know, that would change over time because in the beginning, you just wanted to go hear the news and the rumors. Mm -hmm. and, and we couldn't we couldn't order something and have it here two days later, much less find it to begin with to have it two days later. And so you would right. see all the cool stuff at a con. 
um, and and get the news and all of that. And then it's the one. See, I I know this fandom is still this to everybody and representation. I somehow and maybe it's because I was a white guy. Uh, I avoided a lot of this or didn't have to be exposed to it. But just that whole feeling of security. You know, I found my tribe. I found my family from wherever you're coming from. Even if it's just your basic geekiness, I have to fight to watch Star Trek on TV kind of a thing. Um, uh, e even if it's just that. But I, I, I guess I took all that for granted. But what's been funny is as the – and there was a time in the aughts when it was like, well, the internet is here. Computers are here. Digital, digital or e-commerce is here. What's going to be the point of conventions going forward in the new century? And it and things were kind of atrophying, maybe confused with the way Star Trek was, you know, kind of in a malaise there with Enterprise and feeling like the world's moving on. But what I think even social media brought back to it is we might meet each other and communicate all the time. But the biggest part about conventions now is is the humanity. It's either finding the people you've been talking to online for real or it's. Um, or meeting new people that way, or it's just the experiences and, and streaming is great and live streaming and having stuff on video. But just to say you were there when Leonard Nimoy did his final appearance, or you were there when Patrick walked out on stage and said, we're doing a new Picard and the, and the you know Twitter world melted down, but you were there live to see the room melt down first before it mm -hmm. went online, you know? So there's still those moments and there's still the moments. And even if it's business, you know, the live people traveling and having a nexus point that's brought them all together that way. But just I think people treasure the and now we've been through a pandemic for two years. And so we treasure meetups in a whole different way, even with the people across town, much less across the country. So it's shifted over the time, I think. And I think new fans coming in, it's all about getting autographs and photo ops and doing all the stuff out of the boxes, you know, out of the grid boxes and the schedule. But the longer you come, it's it's finding it's really treasuring the moments that you recognize are unique, you know, whether that's with somebody that's got a name, you know, or somebody whose name you ought to know and you just found out. Or it's maybe somebody who was just in line with you and you become huge friends. And then when you both go back home, you keep that going. And then the cons, like Vegas especially, but any SB is that way too. Mm -hmm. SBI is that way too. But any, any your local regional con that you go to every year, it's a reunion then, or the crew people on the cruise or whatever. It's like it's a it's a reunion. And then it's like and so it's like your found family's reunion. Yeah. We have a lot of people that talk about Starbase as their geek family Thanksgiving tradition. And yeah, our our timing is good for that. And you know, when we went through a rough period a couple of years ago, someone asked me, "What are you What are you getting out of this? What What are you personally?" And I'm like, "This is how I cook dinner for my found family, you know, for a thousand of my closest friends." But it is. It's you know, it because you know, it's a lot of work to put these things on. Mm -hmm. But it's, I mean, it's also very rewarding. Um, so your first fan club that you started was way back in undergrad right a science fiction fan club starbase ecu which was your university uh -huh. so what what did you what inspired you to start a fan club when you were in college well i maybe it was part feeling you're you're in college you're feeling independent and you're feeling your roots and all that and everybody's got cars or they've got 
you know, mobility and you're kind of, you're just exploring the world. And that's one of the things. And part of it also was that was when fandom was exploding and not just with Star Trek, but Star Wars had been out. And, you know, when I was a kid, it was like, oh, these conventions, I'll never get to New York or LA or Chicago to go to a convention. But by then it was almost like you were starting to read about people in smaller and smaller towns and especially colleges, you know, doing that kind of thing. So I don't know. I, it was a combination of wanting to do that and also figuring out how all the systems and bureaucracies work. Cause it wasn't a huge school. It was like 3000 enrollment, but figuring out how the bureaucracies worked, you know, and, Oh, we need an advisor. Okay. Well, I found a guy who I can't know how, I don't know how, but I knew we had an English professor. There, there had been a science fiction club before and he had been their advisor. So I went back to him and he was like, sure. And, um, so it was it was a combination of that, but it was partly just being in that time and seeing everything exploding and like, look, you don't have to be in New York or L.A. Now, maybe you're not going to have Gene Roddenberry or George Lucas, much less Shatner or Mark Hamill be a guest at your little college or your little club. But that doesn't mean you can't do all kinds of things and celebrate what is around you. So if you've got local authors or regional authors or artists, you can have them. And we wound up doing too many cons. And for the second one, I applied and got, you know, local college humanities funding. And we had two Oklahoma authors come in and, you know, had them up for two nights. And we did the guest thing, you know, and it was very humble and low key. But we kind of started, you know, doing the thing. And it was but it was just by then knowing that, um, yeah, that you could do something in your burg wherever you are. So it was kind of like, well, then, hell, let's do what we want to do. And and uh, it always takes a driving a driving force to get that done. And I guess I was the driving force. But we had a good, you know, we had four, five, six core people. And then of course, by the time we all graduated, that all went away. But that's college, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a moment. It, it, folks organizing a convention is always a moment in time. So fan clubs have changed and stayed the same. We were talking mm. about this a little earlier. What do you think has changed and what do you think has stayed the same? Well, see, that's part of that, like conventions too. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is it's not like they've totally evolved. I've seen a lot of old line clubs, whether they were like chapters of Starfleet or they were independent or whatever. Some folks, and this may just be generational because the, I don't want to say the younger people are, but the more the generations go by, everything is like, I hate to say this, I don't mean it negatively, but shorter attention span, but like, you know, minimalist, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, younger generations, they don't like my grandma had her, we always got her a collector's plate when we went on vacation, you know, and now people like my son, they're like, ah, like, no, I don't want to have, cra- I'm going to have to move again and again. I want to. I don't want crap, you know, that's, they say everybody wants experiences, not souvenirs, you know? So one thing is to watch the fan bases. There are still a lot of OG clubs out there that were, you know, and especially in Star Trek, whether they're Starfleet or not, they're, you know, they have their t-shirts and they, they may even still be like work with ranks and all that. And, and there are a lot of them. I see the, the away team model and we've got this in LA. I see it in New York. It's a, where it's very small footprint. It's like everybody just stays together. Maybe they hub around a Facebook page or something, but everybody, people just plan events. There's not regular meetings with dues, all that kind of thing. And some people crave that. And some people are like, no, don't, I don't want to be pinned down. So 
you know, but it's flexible, but they still have events together. They, if there's a con, they go, if there's an event that's special, you know, a museum show or some actor comes to town, it's not part of a con. They go to see their show or their, you know, so it's like, it's more flexible. It's more mobile and flexible, but there's still the bottom line. There's still community and they're still sharing, you know, the Star Trek glue that brought them all together in the first place. So that's, but, you know, but a lot of the old school clubs are still out there and that's what they want to do and God bless them. So, you know, it's, everybody's free to do what they want to do and people are just thinking outside the box. Yeah, absolutely. So you have been to our little Indianapolis con, Starbase Indy several times. So what do you like about Starbase Indy? Um, I think it's been four times since the early aughts. So mm -hmm. the first two were like back to back. Um, well, it's the same thing. I love that any smaller con or regional con. And when I say smaller, it could be, you know, several hundred, several thousand. Um, it's just the people and watching everybody enjoy themselves. There's, there's a lot on the line on the scale of what you're doing. But at the same time, you're not, you know, you're not swallowed up with thousands or tens of thousands of people and people know each other and for me it's a lot of it's just the travel and getting to go somewhere and meet a whole new slice of fandom and see people and like we were saying see the different the different personality types and fandom with a whole new face on them uh but yeah and you just and you never know um when you're going to meet someone that you actually like keep a contact with up later on for something business or you know fanish or whatever you just never know who you're going to meet and, see. and that goes for even the guests and sometimes it's even low you got to see somebody else that you do know as a guest but in a new place and even when i go back to a place again like there's still what's the little town that's like the little retro vintage town that's outside indianapolis which one um is okay. it nashville brown I, I county there's one that I always every year I say, OK, I hope I'm here long enough that I can like go out there to it. And I've, I've missed it so far. But anyway, there's there's things like that. It's like if I can tack on a side day and go do a side tour somewhere close by, that's cool to a museum or something like that. But well, you haven't yeah, seen the Janeway to... statue yet. No, I haven't. See, that's on the list now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's only about an hour south of us. Uh, and and Kate's coming in october yes 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 so my, <laughs> i did my trekland tuesdays live about that because they did you see the back and forth about oh the, yeah oh it's going to cause a temporal causality yes. some some really snarky smart fan who's had a ball with it and then jane Fantastic. and then kate uh, answered her back yeah yeah absolutely so what are you working on now huh. so i'm i'm building portal 47 which is trying mm -hmm. to all that backstage uh oomph for people to bring it to people around the world. Everything, a lot of what I try to do, I always try to think globally. So I've got I've got people that follow my podcast and our live show on Tuesdays, Trekland Tuesdays Live. Mm -hmm. I do it at, at one Pacific so that in, at eight o'clock and nine o'clock, the UK and mainland continent Europe can can join in. I have people mm -hmm. from all over. And I have a lot of those people and others are in Portal 47, which is uh, our insider's guide to backstage Star Trek, uh, like a mini con all year long no matter where your center seat is. But uh, it's it's me figuring out with some help from a couple of entrepreneur coaches how to, all that background oomph. Uh, it turned into a great tagline where I say it's Portal 47 is for all the Star Trek fans who have no idea how much Star Trek they still have no idea about. <laughs> and it brings, you know, people from all these fields in to talk about it. And, you know, that's a monthly guest. And But we have roundtables and, and we were Zooming 
like in 2015. So way before the pandemic, mm -hmm. that's how we delivered it was virtually. And then we have, you know, live meetups when I'm at cons too. So that, and then this location tours idea, mm -hmm. which Terrace Cassidy got me into with his big company, Geek Nation Tours, which is everything, including he has a trip to Gen Con every year, much less like historical and military places. But we do. Uh, we started doing a, a big Star Trek multi-day location site tour around LA, and we've done San Fran, and we have a we have a big one coming. First one since 2016. Thank you, pandemic. Um, coming next July, July 2023, which is going to be 10 days and be LA and San Francisco. Oh, nice! But apart from the big planned ones, what I do is is a little customized concierge when people come to LA on vacation or even business and they have a you know i th i think if you can take a tour in la to like suicide spots of celebrities or you can go to take a cemetery tour or you know whatever i think you should star trek fans should have a have a tour like that and and i do it where you can help i'll plan i'll plan it for you so we'll go to four places in a day and here's the list and then you know we're off and running and and i and i drive you and take you around so that's been I got that launch just as the pandemic hit. So now we're getting it back out. So that's been exciting, but I still, I still, you know, I still love watching all the new shows and nerding out and trying to encyclopedize and keep up my facts and, and doing the stellar cartography star charts now. And hopefully here in the next year or two, we can update that if, if all the eddies and currents of business are good, because there's been a ton, obviously we got five shows going now. So there's a lot of updating to do for the star charts. So that's um yeah, Portal and Portal 47 and the Trekland tours and the, the contracted things. But the other thing I'm looking into doing and I'm hoping to get started doing it is is crossing worlds and going mundane with Star Trek and talking to like industry and corporate groups and uh, bringing, you know, Star Trek because the geeks did win. <laughs> and yes, Star did. Trek permeate there's all kinds of closet trekkies and closet geeks out there. And I keep finding that. I keep thinking, well, I'm not going to talk about this here or I'll be real coy. Oh, I work with uh, in entertainment, adjacent entertainment properties. And then people go like, what, what? And I'll say, well, Star Trek. And they're like, oh, my God, I'm a huge fan. My husband's a huge fan. My grandma's a huge fan. My nephew's a huge fan. You know, and you go, get over it, Larry. It's not the it's not the 80s and 90s anymore, because look around how many people, you know, how many people are making money in big places off something geekish the cities want comic cons now they don't like you know ignore them at the coffee shop at the hotel in the morning <laughs> absolutely and it it's yeah the the big comic cons are kind of taking over and then you know little ones are like what do we do but yeah you know and, i think and, that i think the pandemic has shook that up too sure. and everybody else i think the smaller and the regional cons people are are coming back to them or treasuring them a little more as people were hesitant to go with 150,000 people at San Diego, I think, you know, mm -hmm. and I think um, that and just the desire to get out out of the Zoom boxes and, you know, yeah. they kept everything going. Yay. That's how we survived. But I think people have gotten a new appreciation for all things, you know, meet up. And I think small to medium sized conventions are, I, I don't say make a comeback, but I think if they could survive the pandemic. And I know SoonerCon back home, Oklahoma City, they, they they were seen as enough of an asset that the Norman's, again, Humanities Council gave them a little grant just to keep going to pay the rent on their storage building and kind of thing, you know. And, and San Diego was the same way. Big San Diego Comic-Con survived 
with a with a grant from the San Diego Tourism, whatever commission, whatever. So, if we can get over that hump, I think people are really recognizing the value and the, you know, yeah. come up and support their cons and not let them atrophy. Absolutely. So, where can people find you on the web? Uh, easiest place is just to say LarryNimacek.com. And that mm-hmm. goes to everything portal. And I mean, there's individual URLs, but uh, the tours and all of that and everything else I do. But my socials, I'm Larry Nemechek on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and especially YouTube. We're kind of booming on YouTube right now because I'm behind. But basically, it's Larry's Trekland or Larry Nemechek's Trekland. So Me? everybody go like and subscribe on YouTube. Go look, go look, su- like, subscribe. Yes, absolutely. Thank the, you so yeah. much. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, because I didn't mention Trek Files for Roddenberry, and that's my actual podcast. That's audio. And we've been doing that since, well, about to start the ninth season in a few weeks. So, yeah, you've been doing it a minute. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. And I uh, good luck with everything. I think everything's ripe for Starbase. and, And this podcast is awesome. It's a great it's the modern world and you can do so much with it. And uh, hopefully someday I'll, I'll love seeing what's up with Indianapolis when I get back. Absolutely. Trek well. We'll do our best. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.